1: Joining us now, one of the best on the street, Steve Whiting, Chief Investment Strategist and Chief Economist at City Global Wealth Investments. Steve, I want to start with a quote from Cathy Wood. The team and I were talking about this about five minutes ago. It reads as follows. In our view, fears of inflation will give way to confusion and fears of recession during the next three to six months. If so, the rapid growth rates of truly innovative companies should be rewarded handsomely. Steve, your thoughts on that quote?
2: Well, look, I think we're going to have some growth fears, Uh, which we should when we have faced a real threat, which is inflation. But I think it will come down. And if it does, it's likely to help the expansion be sustained. It'll be at a slower pace. We will not see a repeat of what we had in the last two years. You're all talking about these rate returns. The COVID shock itself was extremely narrow and severe, and the policy medicine was incredibly Mm -hmm. widespread. Um, It was destined to get us a powerful return in markets. It's been consistent with record high corporate profits for large firms. So therefore, share prices uh, did what they did. Uh, And when we look going forward, it's going to be a different environment. It's going to be an environment where we're trying to restrain all of the stimulus. And consequently, I think equity returns uh, will slow as well. So the question will be, will innovative companies um, be rewarded in that environment. And they, they probably will over a longer period of time. But we're probably most importantly going to see investors need to focus in on uh, generating income in portfolios. Uh, and that means, again, some of the more higher quality, stable companies. We're not saying to uh, take out any of the innovation in portfolios, but definitely put in um, a little bit of caution within equity portfolios.
3: How do you define quality, Steve?
2: Well, this would be earning stability, dividend growth, consistent income flows. The firms, again, that are not necessarily taking moonshots, uh, but have uh, very, very steady cash flows that they pay out to investors uh, at a higher premium return uh, than bond market yields.
4: So not a lot of growth, or do you think you can get quality growth as well?
2: So I don't really think, for example, growth and value metrics have been really, really good uh, ways to drive portfolios. Uh, We've really needed to look at cyclicals and defenses. And what we wanted to do, you know, after having a period in which many of the cyclical shares have outperformed by double digits, where we think that we're at peak cyclical momentum, we're actually passing it uh, with factory orders, for example, near the highest levels we've ever seen that you want to, again, think about some of the more stable industries. Our largest overweights are in healthcare shares. We think that consumer staples, which suffered uh, the rise in commodity prices over the past year, uh, will start to see that uh, negative drag ebb, uh, and they can catch up some in performance while paying some high dividends. Now, if we take a look beneath the surface, again, we do think that there are unstoppable trends that have suffered from the rebound in cyclicals in terms of relative performance, think about alternative energy or fintech or cybersecurity, these really long-term performers, which have a good performance over a few years, uh, but weren't, for example, energies or energy or banks in 2021, which had the rebound effect, that some of those shares, again, will probably outperform well, uh, particularly if you can look at it at a five-year return window.
1: Steve, you're thinking about your coverage, your allocation exposure across industries. Walk us through how you're thinking about exposure allocation across regions, geographies, beyond the United States.
2: Well, at the moment, uh, it's a bit more overweight the U.S. than other regions, and that's partly because of Fed tightening. Um, Now, I would contrast that a little bit with where we were in 2013 through 2018. That period, again, with the onset of the end of QE, Uh, Fed tightening from 2015, explicitly with rate hikes, nine rate hikes from 15 to 18. That was a period in which the U.S. dollar was extremely weak at the starting point. Oil, petroleum, $100 for many years, while the U.S. doubled oil output. We subsequently had a 65% drop in oil, a 20% surge in the dollar over the course of 2014. That dynamic, we think, is not going to be as severe this time, partly because The dollar is much higher uh, on a trade-weighted basis, on an inflation-adjusted basis, both against emerging markets, currencies, uh, as well as uh, developed markets, currencies. Um, If we take a look at China, for example, its equity market was soaring into the start of Fed tightening. This time it's down 32% at its low point uh, as the Fed begins tightening. So it's a different setup here. I think that international non-U.S. dollar assets will hold in a little bit better, but we have still biased ourselves a little bit here uh, with the defensive growth industries uh, within the U.S. market.
3: Well, Steve, talking about Fed policy, and we just ran through some FX commodities and, of course, equities as well, in the bond market, can you take your assumptions about what the Fed will do next year, where you think inflation or growth are going, Mm -hmm. and make a call with conviction on where you think the 10-year will end 2022?
2: No, not with much conviction, but it's uh, at a level, at a rate level that is offering uh, negative real returns, probably out for the decade. You can just take a look uh, at the Treasury Inflation Protected Securities Market. We do think that 10-year average consumer price inflation will be on the order of 2.5%. We're not really disagreeing with the bond market. The rise in inflation expectation that we've seen, we think is very realistic the Federal Reserve and other central banks are not going to try to knock down the trend inflation rate by using recession, again, to opportunistically push down inflation. But even then, we think that the rate of inflation will come down, that there were some unusual aspects to both demand and supply, stimulus and distortions uh, in the past two years, particularly 2021. And some of that can come off. So in other words, we think that we can see modestly rising real yields, but this is not compelling enough to get us to really move into safer fixed income. We do have an overweight in tips. Uh, we've contemplated reducing it some. Uh, it's really been well positioned to get these upward inflation surprises, but now the tips market is at a high valuation.
1: Steve, gotta leave it there. As always, buddy, thank you. Thank you for everything this year and this morning. Steve Whiting of City Global Wealth Investments,
3: We are talking about this virus a lot. Let's continue to do that with Deborah Fuller, professor of microbiology at the University of Washington School of Medicine. Deborah, since we last spoke, we have seen a change in guidance from the CDC, from a 10-day isolation period to five isolation days, five days after that wearing a mask. That's if you yourself have tested positive. But for families across the country who have just gathered over the holidays now know they may have had direct exposure with someone who was positive or are, are living in the same house as one, and they don't test positive themselves, What does the science say that those people should do?
5: right? It really depends on if you're vaccinated or not. So there's two different sort of levels. Isolation really means if you did test positive, uh, then you need to self-isolate for five days. So say that family member comes home and and they start to feel sick and uh, go get tested and they become positive for COVID-19. They should self-isolate within your home for five days. And then at, uh, after five days, uh, they can come out with their mask on and hang out with you that way. Now, if the rest of the family members are vaccinated, that means that, you know, you were just exposed to somebody. Uh, If you're vaccinated, you do not need to quarantine. Okay, but uh, you do need to go around. If you go out and about, you need to wear your mask for uh, a minimum of 10 days. So that's that's sort of the recommendation. Now, if you become positive, now you are in the same boat of your as your family member Mm -hmm. and you need to uh, self-isolate.
3: Well, and some of the other confusing messaging we've gotten out of the CDC, Rochelle Walensky who heads up that uh, agency was speaking yesterday saying that there isn't necessarily the science doesn't tell us exactly whether a positive test actually uh, indicates your ability to transmit the virus, saying people shouldn't get PCR tests after they've tested positive because it may tell you that you're still positive for weeks to come. What do we actually know about the connection between positivity and then giving that to other people, especially with Omicron that is more contagious.
5: Right. The PCR test is a test that actually measures the sequences of the virus. Uh, And what can happen is that even after you uh, have cleared the virus from your body, you can still have those sequences stick around for quite some time. And so what's happening is the PCR can potentially measure dead virus. So you can potentially come up positive uh, by PCR for for weeks, uh, even after you have cleared it. Uh, The antigen test is a little bit more uh, specific in terms of it. That only comes up if you're really uh, shedding some virus, but the difficulty there is that it's not necessarily as sensitive uh, as a PCR test. However, with these self-home testing, if you can take that on, say, a daily basis, uh, the repeated testing of it uh, and repeated, say, coming up positive or coming up negative, that's going to provide much more assurance and confidence of whether you're positive or negative
4: seems to me you should just use conservative common sense and then we'll all be okay. I mean, obviously, <laughs> yeah, exactly. if exactly. you just spent the holiday season with somebody who tested positive, you should chill out for a while and probably yes. wear a mask when you're out and yeah. about. I wonder about long COVID, Deborah. what do we know about people who um, suffer, you know, infections or, 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 or disease that might indicate infections that have gone beyond the respiratory system?
5: Exactly. Yeah. This is uh, uh, the big unknown right now. There's just uh, there is a lot of research going on right now uh to understand better uh what are the causes, what are the mechanisms underlying long COVID. We do know that a virus infection does cause uh inflammation and sometimes inflammation, even long after the virus is cleared, the body uh can persist and can it sort of has a feedback loop that can continue to cause uh inflammatory responses in any part of your body. Uh, And to some extent, we believe uh, that that is related long COVID may be late related to this uh, durable inflammatory response, but we really don't know for sure. Uh, And so that's really uh, an area of ongoing study and we're gonna learn more and more about it. And certainly, uh, you know, one of the big reasons why I tell people you really do not want to get this virus. It's uh, something that you don't know long-term how that's going to impact your body.
4: Although, isn't it likely that we all are going to get this virus? I mean, uh, especially now that we're seeing numbers approaching 2 million new infections globally in a single day, and we've seen that now three days in a row, Mm -hmm. are we not all gonna get, most of us gonna get this? I mean, Angela Merkel, I remember, and not only was she the chancellor of Germany, but also um, a PhD in chemistry, at the very beginning of 2020 said, 60 to 70% of the population is gonna get this.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Especially with Omicron being so widespread and and, and, uh, so massively transmissible. Uh, there is an expectation the majority of us will get exposed. Uh, Will we all come up positive? Will we all get COVID? Really, to a great extent, uh, vaccination is going to make a huge difference there. Uh, We've seen that, you know, when you get vaccinated, uh, that you're able to recover much more quickly, uh, that there are a lot higher chance of having, uh, if you're come up positive asymptomatic uh, infection. So vaccination really does help to, to more effectively clear that virus from the body and control that inflammatory response that typically arises in response to the infection.
3: All right, Deborah Fuller, University of Washington School of Medicine. Thank you so much for sharing some time with us this morning.
1: Joining us now on the geopolitics as President Biden and President Putin are set to hold a phone call a little bit later today. Tina Fordham, the head of global political strategy at Avonhurst. Tina, picking up on your line, the geopolitical trifecta of Russia, Ukraine, China, Taiwan and Iran are all the more volatile given the perceived weakness of the West. Can you talk to me about that weakness, Tina?
6: Yes, absolutely. Well, from where um, Putin is sitting and uh, in Beijing, they look at the West's response to the pandemic, very high death tolls, um, the the, vaccine uh, skepticism, uh, the kind of internal um, tensions and polarization and have concluded uh, that their pre-existing, pre-pandemic narrative of a West in decline has been accelerated. And I think this is something that um, global investors have failed to appreciate that there was this existing narrative that uh, the the west was in a kind of a slow decline and that the pandemic as a as a crisis accelerating existing trends has just sped that up and so what i the point i want to make is that that possibly changes their political calculus when it comes to making mischief in geopolitics.
3: When we talk about the West, Tina, are we primarily talking about the United States?
6: Well, I mean, we used to have this term, the international community, in the olden days. Um, Nobody talks about that so much anymore, but, you know, we can say the G7, uh, the the advanced democracies, um, and uh, the notion that these countries, you know, even as recently as the global financial crisis, got together in times of crisis and um, developed policy tools. Uh, We haven't had that in the pandemic. Uh, Many people might try to blame uh, President Trump for this, but in fact. In uh, fact, this erosion of you know working together on collective action problems predates Trump, um, but it means that there is an opportunity, if you are a rogue or a challenger actor, to try to um, test boundaries uh, when it comes to uh, a military response or um, uh, other ways of challenging the international status quo.
4: Tina, I look at your uh, research and I see on your wall of worry slide, uh, supply chain and fuel price crisis right in the upper left corner. That's been the biggest problem for markets. That's been the biggest problem for um, the economies of the world uh, due to COVID. Do you see any recovery there?
6: Well, so I think the inflation, supply chain uh, issues and, and uh, the fuel price crises are clearly the main drivers of risk in markets. And the, the point that I want to make there is that they are also huge problems for incumbent governments and are going to cause uh, a range of attempted policy responses and maybe even poor policy responses. And most investors haven't been in a situation of Managing through this combination of, of factors, and I want to put geopolitical risks on top of it. Um, I, I'm not sure that uh, I'm uh, expecting a resolution anytime soon because, in many ways, it it, it suits um, some of these uh, challenger actors to have these levers, and that's where the Russia-Ukraine um, uh, crisis comes in with troops massing on that border. Ultimately, is that going to be about Nord Stream 2 and? supplies to Europe, but that's certainly a big part of what's going on.
4: Yeah, I always go back to that. I can't remember what network had a series called Occupied, where I think Russia takes over Norway um, because Europe wants to keep the gas flowing. How... Strong is that lever? I mean, how much leverage does Vladimir Putin have in that he's supplying um, one of the most important civilizations in the world with natural gas that's indispensable?
6: Sure. Well, I, I think we can, you know, we can characterize Russia's capacity in, in one word, and that is that it's a, it's a spoiler and a disruptor. Right, Russia has many levers. Uh, the gas supply one is the most significant one for markets. But what I think people tend to forget is that all of these smaller things that are happening around the margins, like the weaponization of, of refugees coming from uh, from Belarus uh, to the tensions with the Baltic states, uh, Poland, etc. These are also about undermining European unity, and we can see that the new German government has in fact not signed off on Nord Stream 2, even though Merkel's government was was very much behind it. You know, this this uh, ramping up of tensions with Ukraine, you mentioned the phone call today between Biden and and Putin is also a way of saying of of Moscow saying um, we have ways of of making your lives difficult. We are a force to be reckoned with. We have real leverage in these discussions. And don't forget about us.
1: Tina, wonderful to catch up with you through much of this year. And thank you for your contribution, not just this morning, but through 2021. Tina Fordham there of Avonhurst. Thank you very much.
3: We're talking about whether or not monetary policy is going to get tighter, what that actually means. But what will the read-through be to the equity markets? Amy Wu Silverman, equity derivative strategist at RBC Capital Markets, joining us now. Amy, we focus a lot on how easier money means kind of subdued volatility. In theory, that would mean that once you start to see that being pulled back, volatility will remain elevated. You see it instead normalizing, though, in 2022 even further. Why?
7: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I'll just give you one data point. In 2008, we hit essentially the same volatility max levels that we did during the pandemic. It took us four more years to normalize back to pre-2008 levels. We've already done it, Kaylee. between 2020 and 2021, there's been a 25 realized volatility point drop in the averages we're seeing as this year closes. And I think that continues because even though we get pockets of realized volatility, the volatility market has essentially already gotten used to this new normal.
3: And also, we've seen this year, it, and this it comes back to easy money, buying the dip has worked every single time. <laughs> it has been the consistent behavior. Do you think that will change in the year ahead?
7: I actually think it will not. I think we are going to get another you know, GameStop AMC meme slash YOLO situation again this year. You know, unfortunately, I cannot predict what stock will be the target. But, you know, we track that very closely through skew inversions, looking at these call demand levels compared to put demand levels. And I think it's going to be very correlated to what we see happen with the cryptocurrency path this coming year, especially with regulatory, uh, you you know, items coming down the line.
4: What do you look uh, back act um, to help you predict twenty twenty two. I mean, do you compare the COVID pandemic to the global financial crisis to the internet uh, bubble burst? How do you how do you gather the experience necessary to look forward?
7: Yeah, that that's exactly right. That's a big part of it. We look at seasonality changes sliced. Uh, both through realized implied volatility levels, you know, back essentially as far as we can go, even to 1987. Uh, And and one of the really interesting facts is during the pandemic, we hit volatility levels that actually surpassed 1987, as well as the other crises you mentioned. And so the fact that we've come down to pre-pandemic levels within the last two years compared to all the other situations where it took four to five years to normalize just kind of tells you how resilient Uh, the market has been overall and how that has bled down into the volatility markets as well.
4: In terms of uh, volatility, we still have um, a lot of elevated uh, indicators. For example, if I look at um, price earnings ratios, we're still at 26. I think historically, um, the level is around 17 to 20. Uh, What do you see? How long do you see this market taking to get really back to normal from the pandemic?
7: You know, I think it happens next year. Uh, one thing I would point to is the the way we're gonna see disparity, particularly in options, is going to be within the different subsectors and factors. So, you know, as interest rates rise, you're gonna start to see that distinction between value, between growth. And so I think you'll see pockets of volatility difference between an IWM or a QS or a SPY, But that overall level, I think, when we're sitting here at the end of 2022, um, you know, we'll we'll probably be at a a 12 or 11 handle in terms of realized volatility. It's certainly a sub 20 level uh, in the VIX.
3: Amy, I want to come back to the retail investor because you mentioned GameStop, and I cannot believe that that was a phenomenon that began almost an entire year ago. In some ways, it feels like it was just last month. But when I think about the factors that were driving that activity on the part of retail traders, We had had massive government stimulus. They had more money in their pockets, and you obviously had ample liquidity provided by the Federal Reserve. If those two things are normalizing, why would retail activity not be more subdued as a result?
7: I think that's a great question, and I think part of the answer is that probably well. However, you know, look the the person who is on Robinhood and and trading GameStop options is, is. really the same person who's also owning Bitcoin and Ethereum and, you know, that whole suite of things. And so look, if we go into 2022 and we get, a massive rise in uh, cryptocurrencies, you're going to see that wealth effect, I think, uh, spread over into the options again. You know, we know that this investor is both savvy in both pockets. And the other thing I think is interesting is, I don't know if you recall back in November when we kind of had that volatility freak out, hmm. uh, you, you know, with VIX kind of really ramping up plus 60 percent that month. You actually saw the retail cohort owning puts, which is something that they hadn't done through the entire pandemic, but they're clearly capable of doing. Hmm. Um, So it may not even be that they're trying to own upside through calls. If they see this market going down, that you, you might actually see that put option volume really spreading as well
3: let the record show, retail traders can be bearish on some occasions. Amy, you mentioned a tie, too, with the cryptocurrencies. And we talk a lot about equity volatility. There was a narrative out there that crypto volatility was going to start to become, you know, much more subdued as you have institutional adoption, as you have the introduction of a kind of formal mechanisms like a crypto ETF. We did get those things this year, and yet you are seeing just as much volatility. Do you have any reason to expect that that will change?
7: uh i i i think look in the in kind of the overarching you know decade 10,000 foot uh level sure that institutional adoption all those themes you mentioned will eventually Cause volatility to kind of normalize. I don't think we're anywhere close to that. Um, I think a large part will be regulation. The second half of next year will also be uh, a big catalyst for the Ethereum network when they go from proof of work to proof of stake. And, you know, all these things are still really in their infancy. So I think that cryptocurrency continues to behave like a risk asset. And, you know, when you just kind of say, top 10 biggest drawdowns in crypto, what did S&P do? You know, the correlation levels over kind of a one to two year time frame is still only 30%. I think that has a long way to go in terms of how that behaves uh, as regulation comes down the line, Kayleigh.
1: Amy, as we look back and assess the year 2021, it was about 12 months ago when we started the GameStop mania, the meme mania, people talking about the apes, et cetera, et cetera. Amy, what frustrated Tom and I at the time is how many people look down their nose at some of these investors this so-called new entrant into financial markets. Amy, what's your lesson? Because you talked about, just briefly then, the sophistication of some of these individuals in this market. And I think, Amy, that's still overlooked 12 months later. What have you learned about that?
7: It's been an absolutely fascinating ride for me as someone, you know, look, I've been in derivatives for 20 years. And for most of that time, it was just this niche thing. No one ever knew, you know, what I did, mom and dad. You know, thinks I'm a stockbroker, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, and then, and then, you know, y- you look at Reddit, and they're talking about gamma squeezes, which is mm-hmm. which is something that you know you can't really know unless you've had kind of a more savvy introduction into the industry. You know, that these investors knew that they were causing these momentum, you know, dealer based. Over hedging in the market, and that was causing a lot of the action that you're seeing. And that's why we actually, you know, separately track now the activity of skew inversions in something like a Tesla or GameStop or AMC. And we split that up from the more, I guess, you know, blue chip parts of the market because we know this activity is something that can continue to be a phenomenon.
1: Amy, thank you. Thank you for everything this year. Amy Wu Silverman, just the wonderful Amy Wu Silverman of RBC.